When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The critics just went berserk. It, it, it is a good album. It is a good album. And uh, it came by surprise. You know, I I didn't know my son was so talented. So I was in there and Glenn Fry came in and said, what's that? I played him my new song and he taped it on a cassette recorder. And he said, look, Jack, I just have a new band I put together. Would you mind if we worked up your songs? Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Vintage Rock Pod, the podcast series that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. This is the podcast series where we interview rock stars from the classic golden age of rock from the 60s, 70s and 80s and hear all their wonderful stories. I'm Paul Stevenson and thanks as always for hitting play. I've got another jam-packed show for you this week with not one, but two incredible star name interviews. One is a songwriter in the Songwriters Hall of Fame who just so happens to have written a couple of tracks on the biggest-selling album in American history. And the other is the undeniable queen of rock and roll from the early 70s with number one hits and record sales of over 55 million worldwide. She spoke to me just a couple of days ago about a special new release that she's been working on. So, sit back and get ready to enjoy this bumper edition. But before we get stuck into it though, a quick call to you, the rock and roll fan, the listener of the greatest music ever created. Now, I'm putting together a couple of special episodes featuring fellow rock fans and their stories from around the world. People of all ages and descriptions coming onto this podcast to tell me about your love of rock in whatever subgenre it is that you like. Now, if you'd like to be involved and want to be featured on the podcast, drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com and we'll sort out getting you on. I want to hear from people all over, so don't be shy, get in touch. But that's for the future. Let's bring it back to the now and start where we always do with a week in rock as we catch up on all the rock stories from the last seven days with our friend, author and journalist, Tim Peacock. Let's see what he's got for us this week. Okay, a bit of an eclectic mix as usual this week, Paul. <laughs> Wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> Firstly, I thought, well, seeing as you had the great Steve Diggle on um, uh, just last week, I thought um, yep. Buzzcock's related story might be a good place to start this this week. And um, yeah, yesterday there was um, a blue plaque actually was unveiled on the childhood home of Steve's fellow Buzzcock, the, the late uh, Pete Shelley. Uh, Pete was born in, in Lee in uh, central Lancashire. I mean, Buzzcock's obviously well known as a you know one of the Manchester bands, but Pete yeah. was actually born in, in Lee, uh, which is actually only down the road from where I'm from originally. So a certain amount of uh, you know interest for me, I suppose, another Lancashire. Lad, but um, I, apparently this, you know, there's not that many people, really famous people, get blue plaques out there. I mean, amazingly enough, but this one has happened. Apparently, I remember when Pete died, unfortunately, I remember being shocked about it, but yeah. there was a campaign kind of kicked off very quickly. And apparently there was a lot of toing and froing between the campaign and, and the local council, which is Wigan Council in that area. Anyway, yesterday it was finally unveiled on his childhood 
home, which is great. And it was unveiled by no less than Malcolm Garrett, who I don't know if Steve might have mentioned, but Malcolm Garrett did, of course, all of the Buzzcock sleeves. So he's a pretty cool person to have yeah. actually done the unveiling at the time. Yeah, Absolutely. I always wonder yes. about these uh, blue pack unveilings because obviously there are people still living in these houses and then people turn up and they put a nice blue shiny <laughs> plaque on the outside of their house that they, they own, I'm guessing, and the, the press pack turn up and so do a lot of fans and people stand there in front of your house. I mean, it's a bit of a weird one, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not too familiar with the immediate area around there, but I saw some pictures of it. In fact, you can, if you go onto YouTube, you can see there's like an unveiling video mm -hmm. where Malcolm says his thing. And, um, it's just like it's a regular house. I mean, apparently Pete's members of Pete's family did attend it, which is nice, obviously. And probably there would have been more if we weren't living in these kind of COVID-related times. But yes, it must be quite strange. I mean, if you're just like a suburban house and all of a sudden <laughs> there's this blue plaque up on it. But I, th I, must, I must say, to be fair, like I think he's... Pete Shelley is more than deserving of it. I mean, he is undoubtedly one of the giants of Mancunian songwriting. I wrote a review for Record Collection of another lost Manchester band called The Distractions earlier this year. They did an album for Island Records in 1980. And I did actually in that dis describe their songwriter, Steve Perrin, as being up there with Manchester Mancunian giants such as Graham Gouldman from 10CC and Pete Shelley. So there you go. But I, I do think, I mean, he was an amazing songwriter yeah. and it's great that this has happened. So, and there's actually, there is um, a campaign actually to get a more permanent memorial to Shelley erected yeah. in, the, in the town of Lee. So that's an ongoing going thing if anyone's interested there is a website to it it's just called peachshelleymemorial.com it's a non-profit thing but you can have there's, there's a tribute album out to him as well where people have covered some of his songs so yeah there's more info you can find on that brilliant that's a new story one so what have you got it's very eclectic i'm, I'm looking forward to what's number two then <laughs> Okay, well, entirely different, actually. Although, to be fair, it's possible that Pete Shelley and Steve Diggle and co might have listened to this band on the way up. I know that Shelley was into people like Roxy Music and so forth, um, and Brian Eno. So it's not such a huge leap. Uh, Hawkwind are the, the oh, subject okay. of my second yeah. story tonight. Um, and so many bands have listened to Hawkwind, or indeed were in Hawkwind <laughs> over, over the years. But there's, there's, a new, um, there's a new book by writer Dave Thompson about the band. It's called The Encyclopedia Hawkwindia. It's called The Ultimate Guide to More Than 50 Years of Hawkwind, and it's just coming out. There's a, a print edition early in 2000, next year, 2021. So, yeah, that's, really? my, that's my next one. Were, were you into Hawkwind, Paul, at all? Not hugely, if I'm being honest. We covered um, Silver Machine, as you usually do, when I was in my, my band back in as a teenage mm. years. But like you said, that, yeah. that book's going to be interesting for the, for the amount of different people that are involved in that band and the stories in that band as well. Absolutely. And it seems that it, uh, the author has gone into a fair amount of uh, detail with this. According to the blurb, he's conducted more than 70 interviews. Wow. I don't actually know how long he was working on this, but there are apparently interviews. Obviously, Dave Brock, who's still very much, uh, you know, the cornerstone of mm -hmm. Portwind, he's been interviewed. And also Nick Turner. Dave, Dave Thompson, this writer, has actually done a book on Nick Turner, who, who was in Portwind for a number of years. Uh, but also he's interviewed Lemmy and he's Robert Calvert. I mean, sadly, he passed away a number of years ago and various other people who were involved in the band over the year of the years. And apparently it, it, it says that um, it spans about 600 pages and takes in everything from Hawkwind's very first show in 1969 through to pretty much now. And he's gone into side projects and everything. So I guess if it's the band you're interested in, this is probably the one you'd want to, want to get hold of, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be a very, very, very detailed one by the sound of it too. Lovely. So what's uh, the third story for us this week then? 
Uh, do you fancy buying a new car at all at the moment? Because this might fit the uh, bill. Yeah, go on. <laughs> None other than Eddie Van Halen's uh, Ferrari is actually going under the hammer, it seems. Um, now, the bidding, as far as I gather, actually finished today on this one. So it's probably too late to put in a bid now, it would okay. seem. However, um, it's gone up for auction on a website called Gotta Have Rock and Roll. Um, apparently, the bids started at a cool $200,000 only. So... Plenty of pocket money there. Right, okay. Uh, right, yeah. According to according to the blurb, the car had only twenty eight thousand miles on the clock, um, and it's in black. And it's a six speed race car. It's quoted as being in excellent working condition and is billed as quote the ultimate collector's item. So, and it's been serviced by Ferrari as well. So that could be interesting. If you've got over your, your Rolling Stones memorabilia we were talking about last week, time to buy a flash car with it. <laughs> about the same price as one of the pine glasses that I saw on that website, to be fair. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only thing so, that disappointed me with that there, though, Tim, you said it was black. I was hoping it would look like the the, the, the uh, guitar of his, you know, a very iconic red and black look, but no, just plain black. Yeah, I'm Absolutely, of course. There may have been more than one, but th this is oh, the yeah. only <laughs> one that's got up for sale. I, I can't, I can't absolutely say on that one. But um, yeah, apparently they, they think that the bidding may even reach as high as three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So I don't know. Uh, three of, of Eddie's guitars, Van Halen guitars, actually sold previously. So I don't know. It's it, it's possible. Um, the, the same auction, incidentally. Um, on that same website, there's also um, a Stratocaster, one of Eric, Eric Clapton's Stratocasters, a Yamaha acoustic guitar originally owned by Jimmy Page, wow. um, uh, one of Bruce Springsteen's Telecasters from the River Tour, um, one of Chuck Berry's Gibsons, and um, a, a Gibson Melody Maker guitar owned by Jimi Hendrix. Um, Though that, I would say, is probably one of his more obscure guitars. You know, you think Hendrix, you tend to think Stratocaster or maybe the Flying V that he used to play on the blues numbers and stuff. But it's still a, one of Hendrix's guitars. So there's a fair oh. bit of stuff on there anyway. <laughs> That's for the serious collectors, that sort of uh, auction, isn't it? <laughs> it, cer it certainly is, Paul. I don't think I'll be putting any bids in. But anyway, there's more information. <laughs> the website is it's called Gotta Have Rock and Roll, uh, G-O-T-T-A, gottahaverockandroll.com. If you log on to that, you'll find more information you might get the car of your dreams or one of the guitars of your dreams who knows who knows just who knows in time for christmas <laughs> yes. excellent thank you very much tim for bringing us that fantastic news again this week you're very welcome paul thanks very much all the best and thanks as always to tim now let's get stuck into our interviews i've got a fascinating one with a man who wrote some huge hits for the eagles and glenn fry coming up you don't want to miss his stories but our first interview of the week came about pretty quickly to be honest i saw she was releasing a new track and within a couple of days there she was on a zoom call with me telling me all about it now this guest is still rocking strong nearly 50 years after topping the charts globally including two number one singles here in the uk she played the character of leather tuscadero in the hit tv show the happy days and has sold more than 50 five million records she is the undisputed queen of rock and roll she is the trailblazing icon Susie Quattro and I started off by asking her how she felt when Mickey Most picked her out of her siblings band in America and brought her here to London all alone at such a young age in 1971 I have been uh waiting for that chance my whole life, you know, to tell you the truth. Um, I was never tied to being an all-girl band. I just wanted to play. And um, I actually had two offers to go solo in one week. One was with Electra. They wanted to make me into the next Janis Joplin. 
Mickey came the same week, saw me and wanted to turn me into the first Susie Quattro. So <laughs> I took the decision. Uh, Business-wise, no-brainer. Emotionally, of course, very, very difficult. But there was no way I wasn't going because it was my was my time, you know. Now, you were signed um, by Mickey Most, obviously, and you, you, were, you were paired up with Nicky uh, Chin and, and Mike Chapman, and, and the hits just kind of flowed from that point. Now, what was the magic between you guys all together then? What, how, why do you think it worked so well? Uh, they were signed after I did the Slave Tour as the opening act with all original songs, I might add. I found my band finally in England. Mm-hmm. I got my people and uh, all original stuff. And uh, so during that tour, we obviously got our sound together. We became a unit. And uh, Mickey, at the same time, had just signed Mike and Nikki. And he said to me, even though I'm signed as a singer, songwriter, musician, and I usually do all my own stuff. He said, these guys are real good at the three minute single. So why don't they come here your set and see if they can craft that. And they did. And if you listen to the first album, all my original stuff is doing, that's what I was writing. So Mike heard that when Wayne wrote Can the Can. We worked very closely together. He wrote specifically for me. He never gave me a song that he wrote for somebody else. He mm-hmm. wrote a song for Susie Quattro, tailored to my character. So yeah. there were times I was in there doing a vocal and I forgot that it was my song and I thought it was Mike's. So we worked real tight. Now, of course, I do everything on my own or with my son. Brilliant. Um, and now, how did it feel then being 23, 24, when you were topping the charts all around the world and touring and working hard? I mean, that must have been incredible because that, that was the dream, wasn't it? Sure. Uh, I'd been training for it since 1964. So um, it was hard, hard work, but work that I love. And I'm not one of the sex, drugs and rocks and rock and roll girls. My father taught me that it was a profession. He was a music to a profession. That's how we treated it. That's why I'm still feet on the ground, basically normal, and still out here creating because it is my job. Yep. And I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you, you did blaze a trail for, for women and, and other female rock stars to come through. And you probably didn't think that at the time because you were doing what was best for you and you were pushing yourself forward. But looking back, I mean, your, your documentary came out last year, your Watson Hall documentary, and you just look at the names of the people that that, that hold you up in, in such high regard. It's incredible. Kathy Valentine, the Go-Go's, and Debbie Harry, and Joan Jett, and Sherry Curry, and and many, many more. I mean, how how does it feel to be recognized and, and lauded by such incredible female musicians? Well, I mean, I did know through the years, because, you know, we always talk and I always had my compliments, but seeing it on the big screen in a documentary is a totally different experience. And you really, it's, it's actually just very humbling. You know, you go, oh my God, she said, what? You know, wow, it is, it, it brought a tear to my eye more than once, I have to say. So it's a nice feeling to know that I influenced so many people. I'm so glad I did because, well, I always say I kicked the door down because I didn't see the door. And that's my character. I didn't see the door. I can't pretend I did it on purpose. All I was doing was being me. That's all. No compromising. This is me. And it's brilliant in terms of your image and everything as well, because um, is, is it true that you, the, all the leather and everything was, was you and Mickey didn't want the leather to start with? And you were saying, no, this is me. This is what I want. And, and obviously that became your, your iconic look. Well, I mean, I still wear it now. So how right, how right was I? You know, um, <laughs> it, the, the jumpsuit wasn't my idea, although I have to say in the Pleasure Seekers, Quite a few of our outfits were jumpsuits. So I've actually been wearing jumpsuits a long time. I find them great because 
I'm a very energetic performer and I don't need to worry about anything. Everything stays in place. So I love them. So when Mickey finally agreed to the leather, he was against. And then it was him. He went, mm, okay, 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 leather, leather. And then he said, how about a jumpsuit? I said, great. And I tell this story a million times. I honestly, may the good Lord strike me down. I had no idea it was going to be sexy. Not until I got the photos back. And then I went, Oh, <laughs> who's <laughs> that? <laughs> because I don't, I don't lead with the looks card, and I don't lead with sex appeal. Mm -hmm. That's actually not who I am. All my, all my thing is about take me serious. You know, take me serious. If I look nice, okay, I look nice. If I'm a pinup, I'm a pinup. But it doesn't, doesn't filter in as reality. All I really care about is the music and the entertainment and the respect. Um, just bringing it to now, then you, you're still creating some fantastic music. Um. Uh, a heads up here a little, a little spoiler what i do when i speak to an artist i then on the podcast talk about my favorite five songs of theirs and uh, one of the five songs is from your latest album no control which came out last year and um, so it's one of those which is just fantastic to see from from an artist who, who who's still around after such a long time i've still got a lot to say i'm not anywhere near done um no control the critics just went yeah. berserk it, it, it is a good album. It is a good album. And uh, it came by surprise. You know, I I didn't know my son was so talented. I honestly didn't know. He was very quiet about it. He was soft-stepping it, you know. And then, then when he said, I really want to write with you, and we started to, three demos in, I just went, we're writing an album, and it just works so well. And during lockdown, I've rewritten, recorded, and it's all mastered, ready to go. The next album will be called mm -hmm. The Devil and Me. Um, and it's... Everybody that worked on No Control, all the musicians, all the different people, they all said, uh, oh, I don't, don't know if you can better that. And guess what? We have. All the people have said it. I don't know how you guys did it, but it's even better. I think what's happened is we've really found our feet as a team. Yeah. You know, the first one was experimental. Um, I told, I said, I didn't want any limits. I wanted to not try to write anything, just let everything fly. And that's what we did. So it's a very organic, lots of different kinds of tracks and no exact direction. This album has a direction. And my son said to me, he loved the last album, loved it. He said, but it was a collection of lots of things. I said, yes, it was. He said, this, I want to be as groundbreaking as your first album. And he was really had his focus on. And we came to blows a few times, but I trust him. He's doing it for me. You know, he is doing it for me. And he had his vision, what he wanted this to be. And now that it's done, I've gone, yeah. There were some challenges in there, different kind of riffs. And I'm going, you know, not quite sure. And he, he forced me into writing around what he's done. This is good exercise, really, really good, you know. So, yeah, we found a good way to work together. And when's this album coming out then, Susie? Uh, it will be out in March. Much. Fantastic. We look forward to that. And uh, you talk a lot about your son um, in, in, in the interview here. So it's it's quite interesting that you've got a new Christmas single coming out and it's your work with your son as well, isn't it? That's kind of brought this around. So tell us a little bit more information about that. Well, we were locked down. He should have been away. I should have been away. I had 85 gigs booked this year and he was only going to be home for like 11 days out of the, they were going all over the world with the, with the, uh, with the lady he works with. And the lockdown came. And the option was taken up for the next album. So I said, okay, wasn't supposed to happen. We're grounded. I have a studio on the grounds. I said, that's right, the album. So we started to write it. 
and it was I was separated from my husband for three months due to the lockdown. And um, I was sitting on the patio where I tend to work with my guitar. He was in the studio. He likes to work with the machines, which I don't like so much. I'm old school, you know. I'll put it onto an iPad with a little wailing on the guitar. That's how I work. And and he had the door open, and the 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 tr this track came out. Obviously, no vocals, just this track. And I immediately felt the pull of it in my heart. It was real strange. It was like a magnet, and I didn't think I, I stopped myself putting any thought process to what I was hearing. No, no thought, all heart. So I went out there and I said, quick, quick headphones, put that on microphone. And I just sang, I just sang the first four lines that came out from my heart. And, and that's what the song is. And it's so strange when that happens. It, it was like somebody handed me a lyric sheet mm -hmm. and, and it, 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 you know, as magical as creation is, that doesn't always happen. So obviously it's a special song, real special song. And it is about missing my husband. And then it became this wonderful Christmas song, you know, and it's not schmaltzy. That's the best thing about it. It's not schmaltzy. Absolutely. And we need more Christmas songs so we can stop playing Wham <laughs> and Shaking Stevens and have something a bit fresher. And it's called My Heart and Soul and I Need You Home for Christmas. And as you said, it's, it's, it, you wrote it around your husband and everything like that. And it's, it's, it's available now, isn't it? Yeah, it's really for now. Take it to your hearts, everybody, you know. So I think the best thing to do is hear it. Susie, can you introduce your, your Christmas song for us? Uh, I will. Okay, this is Susie Quattro, and I'd like to share with you my very special lockdown Christmas single. Oh, boy. It's called My Heart and Soul. I need you home for Christmas.
we've got the brand new Christmas song from Susie Quattro. We were given a special permission by the record company to play that song here on the podcast. Usually there's a lot of red tape surrounding music on podcasts. You're not supposed to play anything without label or artist consent. And that's what we got for this. My Heart and Soul by Susie Quattro. Go get your copy now. And Susie is the subject of this week's top five. So here we go. The top five Susie Quattro songs according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a track from her second album, Quattro, from 1974. It's a ballsy rock and roll number where she tells us she never loses. At number five is the track, Too Big. At number four is the follow-up single to Too Big, cementing her reputation as the leading female rock and roller in the world. This went top ten in the UK in 1974. And number four is The Wild One. Third on our list comes from her 2019 album No Control. It's full of attitude. It's got a dirty, scuzzy rock feel, which is brilliant. Her vocals full of attitude too. And number three is No Soul, No Control. At two is a huge song. Susie's second number one single in the UK was featured in the episode of Happy Days, Fonzie and Leather Tuscadero Part 2. It's a big sing-along anthem at a place where we all come alive. At number two for me is Devilgate Drive. And at number one is perhaps the obvious choice, but it shot Susie to number one all over the world and put her front and centre of the rock scene. A first, really, for a female singer-songwriter-musician. From 1973, the number one Susie Quattro song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is Can The Can. As always, let me know your thoughts on the selection. Do you agree? Disagree? Let me know on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on those platforms and let me know. And the good stuff doesn't stop there. Up next is an interview I've been excited to share with you for a few weeks now. I had a late night call to California to speak to an incredible guy with some great stories about the Eagles, Glenn Fry and more. Sit back and enjoy this one. Now I'm delighted to be joined by a legendary figure in the music industry, inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he has two of his compositions on the biggest selling album in American history. He joins me now all the way from California. Please welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, Mr. Jack Temchin. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, um, now you've got a lovely new release coming out for Christmas. It's in time for the holidays and, and uh, I'm, I'm dying to hear all about that. But because this is the Vintage Rock Pod, we're going to have to start with with the, the, the massive stories, the, the, the hugely popular songs and everything like that of the Eagles. Now, you worked with Glenn Fry for, for many, many years and you worked with the Eagles. Now, now tell us how, how did you first meet Glenn and how did you, your association with, with the Eagles and everything start? Well, in the 60s, I was a, a hippie, and I had uh, really long hair and, and wore beads and stuff, and I had a house that I rented with all my friends. Uh, I put all my friends in it, and my brother and I had a candle shop in the garage. So Glenn Fry and J.D. Souther came down to San Diego, and they were playing at a coffee house, and what we called coffee houses then. They served apple cider and stuff, and that uh, was folk music, <laughs> was the folk era. And so Glenn and JD were a folk duo. And I saw them play, and I thought they were really great. Uh, so I asked if they wanted to stay at my house with all the guys, and they came back, and uh, and we did that. And then they every time they came down to San Diego, they stayed with us, and they were making a record at the time. And then that was... Uh, quite a few years before the Eagles, uh, Glenn put the Eagles mm-hmm. together later. So, you know, we had a washed up upright base in the living room and we jammed mm-hmm. all the time. And so they asked me to come up to Los Angeles. They were going to introduce me to David Geffen, which they did. He was putting together asylum records and, uh, 
and I stayed there uh, with them. And then later I stayed at Jackson Brown's house and I had written Peaceful Easy Feeling and I was kind of working it out in a, in a back room of the house that Jackson had with a piano and he had all these um, moving blankets on the windows. He didn't like anybody to see and practicing. So I was in there and Glenn Fry came in and said, what's that? I played him my new song and he taped it on a cassette recorder. And then uh, he said, look, Jack, I just have a new band I put together. We're rehearsing. Would you mind if we worked up your song? So I said, no. So he came back the next day and played the cassette of them having worked up the song, which was Peaceful Easy Feeling. And then uh, shortly thereafter, they went to England and recorded that album. And I was back down in San Diego. Glenn came over my house with a reel-to-reel. Hey, -reel. <laughs> now most people don't even know what that is anymore. <laughs> but uh, I was the only one in town who had a recorder. Uh, I purchased a Revox recorder. It was really good. So everybody came over my house and we were hearing this record that he had brought back uh, from England and uh, where Glenn Johns had produced it. And so I'm sitting there and the first song was Take It Easy. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, that's probably the best song I ever heard. You know, <laughs> I couldn't believe it, you know. And then the next song was uh, Witchy Woman, you know, and I'm hearing that. And, uh, well, that, 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 that's also the best song I ever heard. You know, this, <laughs> and the third song was Peaceful, Easy Feeling. And then I said to myself, well, this is already the best album that I've ever heard. <laughs> and, uh, and then shortly after that, um, my wife and I, we got a, uh, being hippies, I bought a Volkswagen bus. Yeah, yeah. We all love the uh, Volkswagen bus because the gas was cheap and you could go a long way. Of course, it, it only went 50 miles an hour on the freeway. It wouldn't go any faster. It was really loud inside, but we traveled all around the country and, I was in a little town and we met a guy in the park uh, who was a <laughs> said he managed rock bands. His name was Star. And we went over the house of the band he was managing and I heard Peaceful Easy Feeling coming out of a little transistor radio on top of the refrigerator. And that's the first time I heard it on the radio. And uh, so that was kind of the beginning. How did that feel hearing your song? Unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable. And... Uh, of course, I didn't have no idea I was going to be able to be in music for a living, you know. Uh, and so I heard that song. I thought, wow, may, maybe that's going to work out. And, uh, and you know, it still feels just as good every time I hear it. I mean, it's, it's kind of a songwriter's dream to have people um, either record your song and put it on the radio and like it. But that song has kind of gone out way, way, way beyond any dream I could ever have had, you know. And so uh, it's a glorious thing. It's phenomenal. And then obviously that song and uh, another one of your compositions already gone um, went on to appear on the Greatest Hits Eagles, uh, 71 to 75, which is the biggest selling album in American history. Now that's obviously phenomenal for the band, but phenomenal for you too. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, beyond anything that I could have thought about or expected, you know. Uh, and then... In 1980, the Eagles decided to take a vacation from each other. <clears throat> they had, <clears throat> you know, tremendous pressure to try to top Hotel California. Come on. 
And then they did uh, The Long Run, which is a fantastic album. But So they kind of burned out on each other. And uh, so Glenn Fry called me and said, do you want to write some songs? <laughs> and I, we'd never written together, you know, and I came over to the house and uh, I had been trying to learn these chords uh, from a jazz guitar book. And I worked on it for weeks. So I, sh I showed Glenn that what I was learning and he immediately just being Glenn, he just, he just played it immediately. And we started making up a song and I came over there and there was um, uh, a beautiful, it was an A-frame place in the Hills of Hollywood where James Cagney used to live. And uh, they'd had all these Hollywood parties and stuff, you know, but it had this vibe. Yeah, and Glenn cool. had a hundred candles burning and they had some expensive red wine. And I said, well, what are the candles? Do you, do you have a date later? You know, because <laughs> I mean, he, he's already he's already in the Eagles, you know what I mean? He was like, he, you know, he's a famous rock star. So I thought, and I said, no, man, uh, the muse is up there. Now, she's up there. And... Uh, there's a lot of guys trying to write a song tonight and we want her to come down and hang around with us. And so that's why I got these candles, you know, and I'm going, Oh, well, gee, I never knew that. I've been wasting a lot of time here. I didn't even know that's how you did it. You know, and we started playing and uh, giving away the songwriter's secrets. Now that surely, you know, all you need is a hundred candles. I, I, I didn't tell anybody. You know, but, uh, and so we wrote the song called The One You Love, which is like, uh, are you going to stay with the one who loves you or are you going back to the one you love? So we wrote that. And we also wrote uh, a song called I Found Somebody. And, and that was the first night. And then both of those turned out to be hits on the radio. And so uh, for the next 14 years, I got to write with my good buddy. Yeah. And he just turned out to be one of the best rock and roll guys, one of the best songwriters we ever had. And and I got to watch uh, and be involved in making the records for years. And I think the one of the, the, the big uh, one for, for for the UK audience anyway, the, the one that went big for us over here was Smuggler's Blues. I mean, that was, was a huge hit in the, here in the UK, um, the follow-up to The Heat Is On. And, uh, and that was one that you worked on with him as well, wasn't it? And that was from the Miami Vice soundtrack, of course. How did that come about? Well, um, Glenn had uh, read a book called Snowblind. And it was about the cocaine trade and cocaine was big. You know, I, I personally tried cocaine and fortunately for me, I didn't like it. You know, it just didn't happen to make me feel good. So, uh, but I am Midnight Jack ever since I've been 16 years old and got my first car. For some reason, I, I always stay up all night. And so I didn't need cocaine and I like to hang around with people. And the only people awake at night were everybody doing cocaine. <laughs> so anyway, he had this uh, book and he and his manager had bought the movie rights to this book. And so he came down to my house in San Diego and said, let's write a song um, about the cocaine trade, you know, about the drug, uh, the war on drugs, you know, which we thought wasn't cool. And, you know, so um, we got to say everything we wanted in that song. And then in the backyard, I had a little studio and he, he said, yeah, it should have some cool slide guitar and it should be like this. And then we made a, we wrote it and made a demo and really happy that we got to just say what we really thought about, you know, the whole drug thing. And, uh, and then the Miami Vice show came along because Glenn met uh, the producer on a, on a flight, you know, Glenn would always just wear uh, uh, hippie clothes you know and he had these 
what he called, uh, when I met him, he had what he called patch pants and they were jeans and he had uh, a hole in the jeans. So he had the girl so that he knew so, so a patch on there, you know, and then he got another hole and another hole. And, uh, and then every, whatever girl he was with at the time, he would ask him to, uh, so a patch. Well, one, by the time I met him, it was all patches. <laughs> it was all patches. It was, he couldn't even see the jeans. But at one point he said, Jack, I think, um, I think I got to wear some spy clothes, which was our term for like what the man would wear, you know? So, he, he started, he bought a suit and dress. He says, I'm flying in first place. You don't know who I'm going to meet. So he sat, uh, then the very next uh, flight, he sat next to Michael Mann and started talking to him. And Michael Mann said, oh, I'm working on a TV show. And, uh, you know, so, and that, Glenn actually acted in an episode of the show uh, where he plays a pilot and they use Smuggler's Blues. So we we had that song and uh, and that, and also they gave us a script for one of the episodes and we wrote a song right to the script. And that song was, you belong to the city. And so those two were on the Miami vice. And that was huge because the first TV show to have a soundtrack album and it's so big. And so. Absolutely. Now we should stress that it's not just writing songs for other people. You you've, you've written and performed in, in many bands yourself and you've released many, many albums, haven't you? Yes, about 10 or 11 albums now. Uh, and the, the last one I signed to um, Mailboat Records, which is Jimmy Buffett's uh, label. And I had a friend for many years, Gary Nicholson, and he produced the album. And he's an amazing songwriter himself. He's had like 600 songs recorded by everybody from Fleetwood Mac to Ringo Great. to Willie Nelson, you know. And... Uh, he produced this album and it was amazing because it was in Nashville and you've heard the song Nashville Cats. I mean, the best players in the world are now in Nashville. If you want to make a record, the kind of record where a whole bunch of players get in the room and they play together, it was just mind boggling how good these guys were. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been doing this all my life and I was, I was just stunned. So I was also, um, toured a lot as an opening act. So I'd go on solo. I opened for the Ringo tour. I opened for the whole Christopher Cross, his first tour. You mentioned Ringo there. I mean, when you opened for him, you opened for him in huge venues, Hollywood Bowl and Radio City Music Hall and things like that. I mean, what what was that like? What what was Ringo like? What was it like on that tour? Well, uh, kind of the greatest guy in the world. I, you know, not like I got to know him that well, but I did open for him the whole tour. And, um, we played Radio City Music Hall, and it was fantastic. And and I did really well because I, I thought these New York guys are not going to like this California guy, but they really did. So then the next night we get on the bus and we go a couple hours south, and we're playing. I don't know. It was like a, it was basically a dirt field <laughs> with some bleachers set up, like a kids uh, softball team thing. And then it was raining and they put boards down because we had to walk across the mud to get to this little place where we were going to change our clothes, you know. And I'm standing there in the mud in, in the rain uh, with Ringo and I'm going, man, this is weird, you know. Last night we were at Radio City Music Hall and look at where we were playing, where we were playing tonight. And Ringo goes, yeah, that's what I like. You know, he goes, I, I just like to do it all and do all the different uh, 
things, you know. But at some point, we got off a plane on the tour, and his his guy wasn't there that uh, that, that takes care of him. So we're walking from through the airport to get to the car, and people just see Ringo and they start to converge. And so I'm, I kind of get in front of him and I'm kind of going, whoa, you know, I mean, it was insane. We almost didn't get through there because so being Ringo is a we- really <laughs> weird thing. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't go out. You can't, uh... <laughs> but I thought he's, he's a very, you know, my impression from the little I knew, you know, he's a super centered, super real kind of person oh that's yeah. great to hear that's great to hear now as uh, we'll get on to the new stuff now because christmas is, is fast approaching and you, it links us nicely to your new piece of work now I've, I've, like i said earlier i've played the video to my kids and, and they absolutely love it it's a it's a retelling well it's a reimagining of the story of the gingerbread man but you've you've made sure the ending changes it's, he's not getting eaten this time is he that's right that's right so uh last christmas we decided to have uh only edibles on the tree you know, so my wife made gingerbread man and then we had candy canes and, you know, popcorn strings or whatever. And so that was our concept. And I'm sitting around and I'll just write a song all the time or whatever I'm looking at, you know. So I started writing about the gingerbread man. And my wife said, yeah, that story always bothers me, you know, because he, it's kind of the moral is um, no matter how clever he is or how fast he runs faster than everybody but he was just born to be eaten and he's going to lose in the end. And I don't like that ending. It's like, okay, well, let's change the ending. You know, so we did. Uh, and I thought, uh, I, I played a concert and everybody really liked the song. And my friend, uh, Savannah Filia, she's a, a singer also, and she does videos where she animates, she draws her own things and, and I asked yeah. her to do a video and it came out just really great. I mean, if you probably saw it. And uh, so I thought, wow, this, this is really cool. So I'm put, you know, uh, letting people know about it for Christmas. And then we took the art that she did for the video and made a book. So there's a kid's book as well. And uh, so it's kind of fun. Really kind and of- it does it look it looks really lovely i've seen um obviously your you, promoter sent me a copy to have a look at and it it does look fantastic and if anybody wants to check these out obviously you can watch the video on on youtube and you can get the book on on places like amazon i'm guessing yeah yeah the book's on amazon and if you want to see the video you go to gingerbreadman.fun so like instead of dot com it's dot fun so you just go to gingerbreadman.fun and then the, you can see the video. Absolutely. Well, Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And um, I'd, I'd wish you all the best with, with, with the gingerbread man. It is, like I said, my kids love it. They love the video. It is fantastic. So every, everybody, I recommend you check it out. Jack, from California, thank you very much for joining us on the Vintage Rock Pod. Thank you. It's really been fun. I appreciate it. Thanks. So there you go, Jack Tempchin. Now, can you imagine the California scene back then, hanging out with an unknown Glenn Fry, and then he takes one of your songs and records it with his band that goes on to be one of the biggest bands in the world. Phenomenal. Anyway, you can see the full interview of that on our YouTube channel now. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on there, and you can see Jack. And that's it for this bumper episode 10 then. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I've still got great guests lined up for future episodes with tons of number one records between them. So look out in your favorite podcast app provider every Monday for the new episodes as they are released. 
Please continue to spread the word as well. Tell your friends, tell your family to get listening. There's some great stories for everyone to enjoy on these episodes. And also catch up with us on social media. We're on all the platforms. Well, most of them, just the big ones. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube as well. And if you fancy coming on as well, don't forget, chat about your love of rock and roll on a future episode. Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com. That's vintagerockpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until episode 11 then, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.